the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Today, Clark Hilton is engineering today's program, and I'm broadcasting from the KPDQ studios. Today, we'll share a classic interview with Carol Kent. She's the co-author of Staying Power, Building a Stronger Marriage When Life Sends Its Worst. And when uh, we're all sort of uh, quarantining together, we can get on one another's nerves. This might be very helpful to you in your household. Carol Kent will join us later in the first hour of today's program. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines, the Trump campaign, not surprisingly, blasted the first night of the 2020 Democratic National Convention as a Hollywood-produced infomercial. Now, one wonders how the Republican convention will differ, given the fact that much of this has to be virtual. He warned that the radical socialist left takeover of Joe Biden is complete, end quote. Former First Lady Michelle Obama, in a measured but searing address on Monday, uh, to close out the Democrats' opening convention night, accused President Trump's White House of operating in chaos and without empathy. She urged voters to cast their ballots for Joe Biden like their lives depended on it. In pre-recorded remarks, President, uh, rather, um, First Lady Michelle Obama stressed the awesome power of the presidency while saying the job requires clear-headed judgment, a mastery of complex and competing issues, a moral compass, and an ability to listen. Hogan Gidley, the Trump campaign national press secretary, said the first night of the Democrat convention left out the fact that Biden would raise taxes on more than 80 percent of Americans by at least four trillion dollars. Now, the Republicans do have the advantage of sitting through the four day Democrat convention to determine what works and what doesn't. We'll see whether or not uh, theirs is something other than a maybe not Hollywood produced, but a produced infomercial. And that uh, convention takes place next week. In other developments, Ted Cruz reacted to the DNC opening night, saying the Dems care more about the woke mob than working men and women. Chris Wallace panned the opening of the DNC, saying it felt more like a telethon than a national convention. One um, advisor said the uh, he thought the first night of the DNC painted America as a dystopian racist hellscape. And DNC MC Ava Longorio was mocked on social media because no one is more in touch than actors and celebrities. I guess you can't win for losing or lose for winning or something. The uh, DNC opened uh, opening night on Monday with the uh, overreaching theme of unity featured prominent speakers representing a broad general election coalition that presumptive Democratic nominee Joe Biden, at least presumptive on Monday, is looking to build on. Progressives, centrist Democrats, independents and moderate Republicans who have disaffected, have been disaffected by Trump. To be sure, Biden's polling lead is tightening and by emphasizing big tent inclusiveness, the Democrats are clearly hoping that the convention will jolt Biden's campaign. At this point, it isn't clear whether the Democrats' narrative that they put the country over the party can hold together or expand the coalition, which polling shows is largely but not exclusively based on opposition to President Trump, rather than a positive message surrounding the Biden-Harris candidacy. In fact, the convention thus far has been light on policy, with the exception of AOC, 
and the uh, candidate she championed in her remarks on Tuesday. Donald Trump Jr. insisted there's nothing moderate about Biden. The media is hiding his obvious flaws. And Marianne Williamson compared the DMC Day uh, uh, 1 to a Marriott commercial. MSNBC Stephanie Rule asked, why on earth does Trump poll better than Biden on the economy and crime? Well, that question will be answered on November 3rd, I suppose. Well, the man who recorded an incident where a man was viciously assaulted by protesters Sunday night here in Portland near a federal courthouse said the city now feels like a third world country. Drew Hernandez said the man might have been defending a transgender woman being beaten and robbed by Black Lives Matter protesters when the mob turned their attention to him and his female companion. The attack attack victim got into a truck, drove away as he and the woman were being attacked, Hernandez said. I think he just felt extremely threatened. Um, uh, They chased him until he finally crashed. When he finally caught up to him, they went nuts. This was violent, extremely violent. He went on to say, sometimes I forget I'm walking the streets of an American city in the Northwest. Sometimes I feel like I'm walking in a third world country, end quote. Over 60 Portland 911 calls uh, went unheeded overnight as police responded to that particular riot. Others followed. Costs from the weeks of protests have taken a financial toll on cash-strapped cities all across the country. And Seattle police released a body cam footage showing uh, officers being injured by explosives during the riots there and the special prosecutor in the Jesse Smollett, rather Jesse Smollett investigation, found that Kim Fox's office mishandled that case and many others. Chicago's $66 million coronavirus hospital has only treated 38 patients and a former CIA officer is arrested and charged with espionage, accused of sending top secret information to China. A coronavirus surge forced UNC Chapel Hill to switch to remote learning only one week into their new semester. Well, Boeing is offering a second volunteer layoff package to their employees. And Google may have to search for answers on newspaper closings. With the NHL deal, Sport Trader has hit the sports betting grand slam. If you're into that, you'll know what that's all about. Well, Governor Whitmer was tasked with criticism of his coronavirus response, referring to the DNC opening night. Uh, and Trump and the media has been hyping the emotional uh, DNC speech as a woman who is blaming Trump for her 65 year old father's death. Michelle Obama was on hand to offer some kind words about Mr. Biden. And Democrats are quite excited that John Kasich, uh, uh, Kasich uh, is backing Biden as well. From that story, former GOP member Susan um, Molinari says the heavy promoted formerly Republican lawmaker endorsing Joe Biden for president at the Democratic National Convention was a highly paid Russian lobbyist whose firm was paid millions of dollars for work on behalf of the Kremlin. Federal records on July 17th uh, show where there were 75,000 new cases, uh, according to a, a new study. I think I've jumped the shark here. Anyway, from uh, Jennifer Van Lahr, um, they, she writes that did TikTok produce the DNC 2020? They actually might have done a better job. Uh, another um, Article on the Daily Caller says a look at how both Biden and Harris have worked to erode religious freedom in America bears some attention. Now, keep in mind, this is the first virtual convention. There's another one to come next week. We'll see what kind of criticism that garners and what differences, what changes they're likely to make as a consequence of this week's convention culminating tomorrow 
with Mr. Biden accepting his party's nomination. Well, the Babylon Bee's Frank Fleming gave an update as they tried to figure out what on earth they did wrong. Twitter temporarily suspended the satire site Babylon Bee. Later in the day from the co-founder, Adam Ford, Twitter has apparently reinstated the Babylon Bee, but we now have 5,000 followers. They had 550,000 before they were suspended. Apparently, it was flagged by mistake. Lila Rose says it appears that Twitter is suspending satire accounts that are on the right, but I haven't heard of any suspensions of major left accounts. Has anyone? Is this another extremely partisan double standard, even while uh, Jack claims they don't take sides politically? Well, we'll just leave that an open question. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're winding our way through some of the news of the last couple of days, and we'll hear from... um, my guest, Carol Kent, Staying Power, She's the, is the book she co-authored later this hour. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. While a new study has found the media is 150 times more likely to give Donald Trump negative coverage than his opponent, Joe Biden. The extra airtime devoted to Trump consisted almost entirely of anchors and reporters criticizing the president. During these two months, the analysts documented 668 evaluative statements about the president, 95 percent of which, which is 634, were negative versus a mere 5 percent or 34 that were positive. Using the same methodology, they found very few evaluative statements about Joe Biden, just a dozen, two-thirds of which, or 67 percent, were positive. Hugh Hewitt points out that the blowback against the media is building when the audience vanishes or another vote surprises editors, columnists, and reporters will be stunned, again, because they ignore the messages like those delivered by um, Westerhout. Trust once destroyed, uh, once destroyed rather, is difficult to rebuild. Well, Diamond and Silk, the African-American women who have been popularized by their support for Donald Trump, were offered $150,000 to dump him, according to a news story. The duo, often seen with Trump in the White House and on the campaign trail, said that the offer treated them as if they were token blacks and they never even considered it. Well, Sunday and Monday both saw considerably lower numbers in terms of COVID-19, the lowest numbers of daily cases since the 23rd of June. Ari Fleischer points out that this is good news, 38,000 new cases. That's about half the peak on July the 17th when there were 75,000 new cases. New daily cases are indeed coming down. With Al Gore joining CNN's um, Anderson Cooper to up the panic level, Democrats and the media join the Postal Service conspiracy theory. We talked in some detail about what that is about. And, of course, the Postmaster General has said he will suspend changes that predated his appointment in order to at least uh, quell the appearance of uh, an effort to manipulate the outcome of the election. And California parents are suing the governor to reopen their schools as they worry about lifelong negative effects of school closures. Well, not just Russia, but Iran paid bounties for targeting U.S. troops in Afghanistan, according to U.S. intelligence. And the postmaster general, as mentioned, Louis DeJoy, agreed to testify amid politicized fury from election scheming um, opponents and has suspended any changes that were already in the works. Uh, Donald Trump um, gave a posthumous pardon to Susan B. Anthony and uh, the Democrat nominee Biden would need Democrat controlled Senate unified party to advance sweeping economic plans. The Washington Point Post points out. And what crime did the FBI attorney and anti-Trump deep stater Kevin Kleinsmith allegedly commit? Well, apparently he doctored an email. 
The Democratic candidate for the Minnesota House of Representatives leads a vulgar protest at the police union president's home, a practice that we're seeing more often. And an elderly man sweeping a Chicago sidewalk is sucker punched by a thug in an unprovoked attack. A Chicago policemen or police rather are retiring at twice the normal rate. At least 110 police officers are retiring in August and September. And the director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe, says China poses a greater national security threat to the U.S. than any other nation. The California heat wave has left uh, uh, the threats of rolling blackouts for millions thanks to policies in the uh, in the state. And the Trump administration is finalizing an oil drilling plan in the Alaska Wildlife Refuge. Minnesota's governor quietly reverses course on banning hydroxychloroquine. And heads up, and there's an increasing chance of two tropical depressions forming this week as the already active hurricane season enters its peak. Well, former Vice President Joe Biden officially became the Democratic Party's 2020 presidential nominee last night with a uh, November showdown looming against President Trump. Biden's nomination, which he is expected to formally accept on Thursday night, followed an unconventional roll call vote of party delegates that was conducted virtually from landmarks across the country. Once Biden amassed the required 1,991 delegate votes, a camera showed him smiling in Delaware as he celebrated the moment with his wife, Jill. Thus, bundles of red, white and blue balloons and family members popping streamers. Democrats appearing on camera from their living rooms broke out in applause as Cool in the Gang's celebration played in the background. Thank you very, very much. From the bottom of my heart, he said, thank you, thank you. Again, this is such an unusual, uh, understated convention. Well, past conventions with their loud celebratory floor votes were replaced this year as delegates had to stay home because of the coronavirus pandemic. Instead, the delegates shared their support for Biden over video feeds from a range of backdrops, farms and beaches, an Amtrak station, an art studio and a fire station. And they told personal stories of how a Biden presidency would rebuild America better. Next week, Trump and the Republicans plan to counter that argument during their own convention. David Bossie has charged that at the Democratic convention, honesty about the true Biden-Harris platform is sorely lacking. In fact, it's light on policy. Cindy McCain praised Biden in a DNC video without endorsing him for president. She's the widow of former Senator John McCain. Colin Powell says Biden will restore America's leadership in his convention speech, speech rather, and the Trump campaign on Biden's formal nomination. His supervisors from the radical left are now formally in charge. The highlight of the evening was Jill Biden in her DNC speech from the former high school classroom. She says her husband will make the nation whole. Well, CNN uh, had a guest that shut down that was shut down for asking why Bill Clinton hasn't been canceled. I uh, want to get pushback on the uh, CNN panelists. We'll just ask them how former President Bill Clinton has avoided being canceled in the Me Too era. Conservative Scott Jennings tried asking that on Tuesday and was quickly brushed aside. The incident began when CNN's Van Jones and former Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm, they showered Clinton with praise, prompting a rebuke from Jennings, who serves, served rather in former President George W. Bush's administration. I have to say I am dumbfounded by this, Jennings said. How is it that Bill Clinton has not been canceled by the Democrats? How has he survived all of these waves of cancellations when he has been one of the biggest violators of these rules all these years. We believe in redemption, brother, Jones 
responded. We talked about the use of character to try to say Donald Trump is a man of lower character than Joe Biden. He's fair game. That's totally fine, Jennings continued. So you're going to say that in one breath and then say character matters, ladies and gentlemen, Bill Clinton. I mean, does this matter uh, make sense to anyone? Jennings continued. If you want Republicans to vote for Joe Biden, having Bill Clinton talk about character and not having drama in the Oval Office, is that the right answer? Again, that uh, conversation was cut short. In other developments, Chris Wallace called Bill Clinton's DNC speech a cogent argument against Trump's coronavirus response. And Media Buzz says uh, Bill Clinton, once the dominant Democrat, is now a footnote at the convention. Chuck Schumer made a pitch to flip the Senate during his DNC speech as he accused Trump of quitting on America. Police in Portland on Tuesday launched a manhunt for the suspect in Sunday night's attack on a truck driver who was seen on video being pulled from his vehicle and violently beaten. The suspect, identified as Marquise Love, 25, also goes by the name of Keese Love, authorities said. So far, several attempts to track him down have been unsuccessful. The Portland Police Bureau is taking this assault and other incidents of violence extremely seriously. And Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler denounced all violence after the brutal attack on the pickup driver while a reporter who witnessed Sunday's assault in Portland says the city is like a war zone. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll hear from Carol Kent, Staying Power. That's the book she co-authored, Building a Stronger Marriage When Life Sends Its Worst. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. Glad to have you with us on The Georgine Rice Show. Well, life isn't perfect. I think we can all agree on that. And undoubtedly, every couple will experience, well, outside circumstances and stressors that can deteriorate and weaken the marriage, if uh, if not destroy the marriage. And whether it's a child's rebellion, infertility, chronic illness, or a financial tragedy, or maybe just sheltering in place, even couples who've been together for decades must be able to weather those storms. But how do you do it? Well, in their new book, Staying Power, Building a Stronger Marriage When Life Sends Its Worst, two longtime couples and authors, Carol and Jean Kent, Cindy and David Lambert, offer practical insights, real-life illustrations, and thought-provoking questions to help couples thrive in any situation. Their combined wisdom for facing some of life's most difficult issues enables them to offer guidance on a variety of topics. Well, the uh, Lamberts, Cindy and David, they've been influencing the Christian publishing world for decades, both as editors and as authors. Carol and Jean Kent are founders of Speak Up Ministries, which includes Speak Up Speaker Services, a Christian speakers bureau, Speak Up Conferences, equipping the next generation of speakers and writers, and Speak Up for Hope, a nonprofit organization that benefits inmates and their families. We are delighted to have with us Carol Kent to talk about staying power. Welcome, Carol. Thank you so much, Georgine. It is always a privilege to be on the air with you. Well, that's just what I was going to say. <laughs> Before we start, let me ask you, how are you faring with this new normal and uh, sheltering in place? You know, it has absolutely turned our worlds upside down in terms of what we do normally. At this time of year, we're usually traveling every weekend somewhere in the country for a retreat or a conference speaking engagement. And uh, suddenly, with everything put on pause due to COVID-19, we're home. 
And I think for a lot of marriages, that's happening right now as people are mm-hmm. sheltering in and some of them are homeschooling or working from home or maybe being laid off. And so that puts stress on a marriage. So Gina and I are trying to help people build a stronger marriage when uh, all of that's happening seems to be pulling us apart or in too many different directions to uh, keep our heads on straight. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is a very timely conversation. What motivated you to take up this subject? Uh, You are two married couples. My husband and I were going to celebrate in exactly one month, save one day, our 38th wedding anniversary. What motivated you to take up this subject at this time? Well, the Lamberts um, are friends of ours, and we both had situations where we said, you know, we've had this um, situation where something came from the outside, not the inside of our marriage, Mm -hmm. that disrupted things and caused us to have to make new choices in order to have a happy married life. And in our case, many of your listeners know of our journey with our son, who uh, was married a previously married woman with two little girls, and he shot and killed the uh, wife, or I should say the husband of uh, his wife, and uh, he wound up getting convicted of murder, and he is serving a life without the possibility of parole sentence here in the state of Florida. And uh, we did an upheaval. We, this is our only child. Uh, we wanted to be able to visit our son, and so we moved to Florida because we could do what we do from any airport. But our lives were turned inside out. And in the Lambert's case, our co-authors, they had a son who was drug addicted and had a little daughter, and they wound up raising their granddaughter. They were the grandparents, but they were raising the granddaughter. And as we were talking one day, we thought, you know, there are a whole lot of marriage books out there about the wrong choices we make, adultery, pornography, those kinds of things that are the bad choices that come from within a marriage that destroy it. But there are very few, if any, books out there about those outside things that happen to us, like uh, hitting a horrific financial challenge or raising an autistic or Down syndrome child, or you might be in a situation where you you lose a child to death and uh, the way you and your spouse cope with it just is an upheaval to your marriage. And we just started to list all of the different ways those outside forces come in. It might be caring for aging parents, or it might be having children who come home and they're struggling with gender issues. And you think, how am I going to make my marriage stronger instead of allow these things, allowing these things to make us weaker? And we began to write down what we felt would be helpful principles for couples who were reasonably happy, who had a a situation come in from the outside that tried to wreak havoc in their marriages. And so we really got excited about putting a book proposal together and writing about something that we felt would give hands-on help and hope to couples who are struggling, never realizing this book would come out in the middle of Mm -hmm. a global pandemic when couples can really be struggling. Absolutely. Once again, the book we're talking about is titled Staying Power, and the subtitle is uh, appropriately named Building a Stronger Marriage When Life Sends Its Worst. The book is published by Ravel and currently available. Now, for those who have been married for a length of time, as my husband and I have, um, this is obviously a helpful book. But for those who have yet to face 
an assault from the outside on their marriage relationship for newly married couples. Is this also a resource for them to anticipate challenges that may come? I think it's very helpful, Georgine. I think a whole lot of young people who are getting married today have watched so many marriages, including some of their parents' marriages, end in divorce. And as Christian couples, they want to make sure that they have a strong, firm foundation. And we've built within this book exercises and questions that couples can do with each other to better understand the stressors in their marriages. Uh, What is it uh, that would be a trigger word that would really uh, not sit well with you from your spouse? What are those anger issues or unforgiveness issues that can give you a challenge? And so I believe this book would be extremely helpful, not only to individual couples working through it, but in small group studies for couples. And in these days of social distancing, studies can be done online with Zoom, and it's been exciting to see how creative God's people are as they learn how to connect and discuss with each other with still practicing the suggested social distancing. Yeah, yeah. Now, your first chapter is titled, We're in this together, dot, 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 or not. How important (laughs) is it that you've made uh, a firm decision that you're going to remain together, that divorce isn't part of the vocabulary or uh, separating from one another isn't part of the, the plan if things don't go as planned? Well, that is such an important first step, Georgine, and we immediately go into some of the pre-decisions that we can Mm -hmm. make as a couple. Jean and I like to call those the non-negotiables. And the bottom line for us is even if he's getting on the last thread of my last nerve, which (laughs) does happen occasionally, even though he's a good husband, uh, the pre-decisions help you to start from a basis of knowing, okay, I know I love this man, I know he loves me, and I know even if he chose unwise words when uh, we were having a discussion or even if he disagrees with my expert opinion, can you believe that would ever happen with us? <laughs> uh, that the bottom line is that we do want this marriage to work. And so you begin to say, because I care for this person, and I know perhaps his tone was not what made me feel affirmed or loved, doesn't mean his heart toward me is negative or bad. And so I'm going to choose ahead of time to know he still loves me, and we are in this together, and we will figure out a way to make it work. And as we began to list some of those other predecisions, one of those was that I will request I will learn and honor and respect the advice of my spouse. Now, Georgine, you may not know that I am the firstborn of six preacher's kids. Do you know what that makes me? (laughs) Bossy. I am a bossy, controlling woman, and I am admitting that to all of your listeners today, which is hard. My face is red. But that means that it's, it's much easier for me to talk than it is to listen. And uh, sometimes my husband doesn't appreciate that. And so one of the things that we did was to figure out the, a way we can honor each other is with the predecision that when we are facing uh, a decision that needs to be made or we're talking about the future or maybe a situation that involves our children or maybe a financial decision that we will ask, actually ask for the advice of our spouse and we will listen 
and we'll, we will respect what that person has to say without jumping all over them with our own words and our own opinion. And uh, that has been a lesson, a uh, hard one by me, but it has been one that has been a great decision for my marriage. Oh, and, uh, and then I'd love to honor my husband with this one. Uh, one of my predecisions was I will serve my spouse sacrificially. And uh, I watched my husband do that for me. And, Georgine, when our son was first arrested, I felt like I could hardly breathe. When you have an only child who's been a stellar student and has always uh, made right choices, and suddenly this child, uh, due to his fears for his stepchildren, for their safety, shoots and kills their father, uh, that turned your life upside down. And that was certainly true in my life. I there were times when I felt like I couldn't even pick myself up off the floor, much less answer the door or respond as I normally did. And I'm used to being a multitasker. And uh, one of the, the kindest things that Gene did with, for me was that he would make coffee for me every morning. And I am a coffee lover. And I know I'm talking to some who are right now. And he would bring me my first cup of coffee in bed in the morning and without words, he would put his hand on my arm, and on very special days, I would sometimes get a foot rub with that cup of coffee, and without words, he was saying, honey, we are in the most mm-hmm. difficult challenge we have ever been in in our marriage. This is crisis level, and we could let it break us, or we can let it draw us together. And with that touch, he was saying, I love you. And no matter what happens, we will face this together. We will get through this. We will give our son the support he needs. We will love the victim's family and try to encourage them as well as our own family. And uh, we are in this together. Together. And, you know, that act of service touched me deeply, and it did increase our bond tremendously and kept us from lashing out at each other. We're talking about staying power, building a stronger marriage when life sends its worth. We need to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation with Carol Kent. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Carol Kent. She, along with her husband, Gene, and Cindy and David Lambert, co-authored Staying Power, Building a Stronger Marriage When Life Sends Its Worst. These, these are the things that assault marriage from the outside but have the potential to devastate a commitment that has been made. And it's such a timely and unique book because it deals with those things um, that we don't anticipate and that we are not directly uh, responsible for. You also write about um, uh, making the next right choice. What do you mean by that when we are uh, assaulted by uh, some outside influence that threatens our marriage relationship? Well, so many times when we are feeling emotionally distraught, we have trouble making decisions. And usually there are a lot of decisions to make. I know in our case, we needed an attorney. We needed to figure out if we were going to try to move to Florida to be closer to Jason. I mean, those are major decisions because of the amount of money and time and uh, personal energy and and emotions that are involved in them. And uh, we really initially got this advice from a man by the name of Claire DeGraff. He says this, that when you don't know what to do, 
just do the next thing you're reasonably certain Jesus wants you to do and commit to it immediately in the next 10 seconds before you change your mind. And Georgine, sometimes I think we forget that when we are in a Christian marriage where uh, both parties in that marriage are in a, a relationship with Christ, that means the Holy Spirit dwells within us. He is our teacher, he is our guide, he is our comforter, uh, he's our, our wisdom giver. And so we sometimes forget that if we ask God for wisdom, he will give it to us, and often he's already nudging us in the direction of making the next right choice. So rather than spending three weeks with the pros and the cons and agonizing and and going on and on over a decision, think about what what do you think Jesus would do if he were in this very situation? And then ask for the Holy Spirit to guide you and make that choice quickly rather than waiting too long. And sometimes when we, we drag our feet, it just takes forever. It makes us more upset. And then move in the direction that you sense God leading you in, and that is extremely helpful for couples if they can commit to doing that as quickly as possible. In Staying Power, you write about um, anger and actually list several positive uses for anger. Anger has the potential to destroy or disrupt, but there's another side to it. Talk about anger in the midst of the challenges that outside tragedy might bring into a marriage. Well, with anger, you it's, it's as if you're that person who says, you know, all my emotions are on the table. This is what upsets me tremendously, and I'm going to get it all out. So as the spouse who is hearing the anger coming from the other party, we can either choose to be offended by that or we can say, you know what, I'm going to practice active listening and I'm going to respond to what I hear my spouse saying and even repeat back to them what I believe they're saying. And uh, often it helps us to understand where they're coming from a whole lot more. And uh, anger means that you're not hiding with thinking things you're not talking about. And uh, that's very beneficial uh, to a marriage. And it also... Uh, can teach us something about who we are in the middle of realizing, are we going to have empathy for what is causing the anger of our spouse, or are we just going to say, you explode so easily, and I'm sick and tired of this, and walk out of the room. Now, um, sometimes when there's anger expressed, as uh, a person with my personality, I can go into the silent treatment, like, okay, you blew up, I am offended, and so I'm just not even going to respond to anything you ask or say. And, uh, Georgine, I'll be real frank here and ask you a bold question. Have mm -hmm. you ever been not speaking to your husband so long you forgot why you weren't speaking? <laughs> it was just the point that mattered. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> I was going to say, you're probably much more perfect than I am. Oh, no. But there have been days when I think, Carol, this is so ridiculous. <laughs> Yes. You, you're, it's just like you're trying to make a point and you don't even remember what the point was. <laughs> and so one of the things that helped Jean and me is that uh, after Jason was arrested and we had moved to Florida, we started to walk together. And uh, so our goal on any at-home day is to walk three or four miles together. It takes us about an hour. And we had started making those what we call prayer walks. 
and obviously we'll chit-chat about what's going on in our day, but then we will start to pray. And I might say, Lord, thank you for the beauty of your creation right now as I look at the sky and I see the clouds. Thank you for, for this beautiful world you made. And Jean might say, Lord, would you just bless Jason as he's in the maximum security prison right now? Would you give him a divine encounter with one of the inmates or one of the volunteers or corrections officers today? And I might say, Lord, would you bless Jean's 91-year-old mama who's feeling lonely and afraid right now? And we'll go back and forth like that. Mm-hmm. Now, people observing us might think we look a little crazy, but we are talking to God, but we're also listening to each other. And when you hear what your spouse is praying about, you know what matters to them. You know what they're feeling angry about or what they're struggling with. And we have discovered over these now at least three to four years that we have been doing this, that it has bonded us as a couple It has helped us grow closer to God because we're talking to him together, and it has created the springboard for some very productive discussions about making the next right choice that we've been talking about in this book. So it really comes down to uh, allowing that communication and even anger expressed to be a catalyst for talking to each other about the things that matter to us and then making choices about how we can come closer together instead of allowing anger to pull us apart. Yeah. Now, we have about three minutes left, and I want to give you an opportunity to talk about forgiveness, which you describe as the glue that holds a lot of marriages together, and uh, your encouragement that, that couples take time out when they're going through a crisis. Can you speak to each of those Oh, absolutely. One of the things that that is important is to keep short accounts. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when we don't allow the sun to go down on uh, our feelings of anger, it's so important. We need to apologize and talk about what happened and give forgiveness quickly to our partners. And what Jean and I are focused on right now is to come to a place of being what we call unoffendable. Meaning, mm. once again, getting back to we're in this together, that we love each other and we know when we raise our voices, it isn't because we hate that person or we just can't stand being in the same room together. It's that we're upset about something. And so I'm going to choose to not let his uh, loud tone of voice offend me. I will choose to practice automatic forgiveness and to say, honey, I know you love me and I know you and we may disagree about this, but let's talk about it and let's pray about it together. One of the things we've done in this book, uh, Georgine, is that there are 13 crisis help sheets in the back of the book, Yes, about 13 major things that hit a fairly good marriage that are, are practically sucking the life out of you if you allow that to happen. And we wanted people to have hands-on help when they need it, websites to go to, uh, books to go to, questions answered. And so we trust that that will be one of the most important parts of this book for every couple who studies it together and uses it as a resource. But as we think of forgiveness, we think of Jesus and all he did for us on the cross. And he said, Father, forgive them to those who had placed him there. Forgive them. They know not what they do. And he practiced 
forgiveness, and we can look to him and find the strength that we need to look our spouses in the face and say, you you really did hurt my feelings, but I love you, and I forgive you, and I'm sticking with you because we need each other, and we need the Lord, and we are not going to let anything that comes into our lives unexpectedly tear us apart. We belong to each other, and we belong to Jesus. Mm. There's so much more in the book that we won't have time to uh, to cover, but I want to let our listeners know that there are also discussion questions after each chapter. That's very uh, helpful. It's a practical book that is, you're not just going to be better informed, but you'll have tools to help you uh, gain that staying power. Building a Stronger Marriage When Life Sends Its Worth. Carol Kent, it's always a joy to talk with you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Georgine. God bless you. God bless you. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program, and I just happen to be sitting in the studio here at KPDQ. Kind of a rare occasion since... Uh, the quarantine. We're looking at some of the day's news and we'll take a look at the Democratic National Convention in its third day this evening. Uh, that will culminate tomorrow night when the former vice president formally accepts his um, nomination for the Democrat Party um, well, nominee. We also will hear from the uh, his running mate who will give her speech, perhaps the most important speech, the most consequential vice presidential speech of Certainly our lifetime, perhaps in our nation's history, given the fact that uh, polls indicate that the majority of people, which includes Democrats, don't believe that Joe Biden will uh, complete a full term. So we'll look forward to hearing what she has to say uh, this evening. Well, viewership tumbled 24 percent on the first night of the convention. Elizabeth uh, Warren spoke at a Native American caucus meeting. Some snickered at that. And Linda Sassauer, who raised funds for a terrorist, was a featured speaker. There's now an effort to um, distance the former vice president from her. The DNC rejected the hashtag MeToo reckoning over Bill Clinton by gifting him with a speaking slot. Some raised eyebrows over that. Well, the Senate Intel Committee says the FBI gave unjustified credence to the Steele dossier while Russia took advantage of the Trump transition team. And the Postmaster General has suspended changes to the Postal Service to avoid any perceived impact on election mail. Governor Andrew Cuomo is publishing a book on his coronavirus leadership or lack of leadership, some would suggest, after lambasting Trump in his DNC speech. Well, a judge has blocked an Idaho law preventing biological males from competing in women's sports. We'll talk more about that in the days ahead. Yet another riot is declared in Portland on night 83. A 200-strong mob of protesters torched the city's famous Multnomah building. And six were arrested after a George Washington statue was toppled and was vandalized near Los Angeles City Hall. And new home construction surged 23% in July. S&P 500 hit an all-time high despite COVID-19 devastation. And dangerously incompetent Scott Israel was defeated in his bid for re-election as Broward County Sheriff. On this day in history, 1812, the USS Constitution defeats the British frigate HMS Guerrero off Nova Scotia during the War of 1812, earning the nickname Old Ironsides. 1848, the New York Herald reports the discovery of gold in California. On this day in history, 1909, the first automobile races are run at the just-opened Indianapolis Motor Speedway. 1934, 
A plebiscite in Germany approves the vesting of sole executive power in Adolf Hitler. 1976, President Gerald R. Ford wins the Republican presidential nomination at the party's convention in Kansas City. And on this day in history, 2004, Google begins trading on the NASDAQ stock market, ending the day with 15.34 at $100.34. Well, former FBI lawyer Kevin Kleinsmith pled guilty on Wednesday in federal court to making false statements in the first criminal trial arising from the U.S. Attorney John Durham's review of the investigation into links between Russia and the 2016 Trump campaign. Kleinsmith pled guilty on Wednesday, and U.S. District Judge from the District of Columbia, James Bolsberg, accepted the plea. Kleinsmith's sentencing date has been set for the 10th of December. Kleinsmith was referred for potential prosecution by the Justice Department's Inspector General's Office, which conducted its own review of the Russian investigation. The Inspector General accused Kleinsmith, though not by name, of altering an email about former Trump campaign advisor Carter Page to say that he was not a source for another government agency. Page has said he was a source for the CIA. The Justice Department relied on Kleinsmith's assertion as it it, uh, submitted a third and final renewal application in 2017 to eavesdrop on Page under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. And U.S. District Judge David Nye of Idaho ordered a preliminary injunction on Monday, temporarily halting a state law that prohibits transgender girls and women from competing in female athletics. The Idaho statesman reported Nye's ruling will allow transgender girls and women to participate in women's sports this upcoming fall at colleges and in secondary schools as the lawsuit proceeds. Republican Idaho Governor Bradley Little signed the Fairness in Women's Sports Act in March, limiting female athletes in the state to biological females. Two female track stars in Idaho previously stated their support for the law, saying uh, that they unfairly lost to a biological male athlete who identifies as a transgender woman. The American Civil Liberties Union, Cooley LLP, and the ACLU of Idaho and Legal Voice filed suit in April on behalf of Lindsay Hecox, a transgender girl from Boise State University, according to the press release. Uh, Hecox planned to try out for Boise State University's cross-country and track teams, according to the press release. Um, The lawsuit was also filed on behalf of Jane Doe, a biological female, who is worried about the law's invasive sex verification testing, according to the same press release. Well, if you remember the case of Joe Kennedy, the Marine Corps veteran turned high school football coach who was suspended, then fired halfway through the season a few years ago for thanking God in silent prayer for his ability to coach. Well, he's back in the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, and he's pleading again for his right to pray on a school football field. This time, 21 states have filed an amicus brief or friend of the court brief urging the the appeals court to find him in his favor. Well, the swath of mostly red states includes Alaska, uh, South Carolina, Tennessee and Texas, uh, where the case began, although Arizona and Indiana blue states made the list, too. No reasonable person would believe that Coach Kennedy's silent prayers on the football field are government endorsements of religion. So the school district cannot justify its actions under the Establishment Clause. That's what South Carolina Attorney General Alan Wilson said in a statement about the brief. The school district's actions demonstrates hostility toward religion. It's basically saying that public employees cannot exercise their right to worship without fear of losing their jobs. 
Well, the amicus brief calls out the Ninth Circuit Court for its uh, previous ruling about Kennedy's prayer, which centered on the meaning and use of the so-called Establishment Clause, the clause in the First Amendment to the Constitution that prohibits the establishment of religion by Congress. Well, the brief in support of Kennedy also argues that curtailing religious liberty is harmful to public employees and government employees alike. Well, part of that brief simply reads, a competitive salary, excellent health insurance, and the highest honor will not induce qualified candidates to pursue public employment if accepting the position means compromising their dearest and most personal convictions. For most Americans, indeed for most people across centuries and cultures, those convictions include religious commitment. If government employers or the courts place unnecessary overbroad restrictions on the ability of employees to express their religious convictions in the workplace, legitimate religious expression will be chilled. And that chilling effect will, in turn, deter highly qualified candidates who desire to work in an environment that allows them to preserve their personal integrity. Well, the amicus brief demonstrates a concise, straightforward interpretation of the meaning of the Constitution's Establishment Clause, especially for public employees such as Kennedy. Well, it's not only Kennedy's religious right, it's um, the rights of all in the future to exercise their religious uh, beliefs as well. What he did is far from a violation of the Constitution, his supporters argue. But in fact, it's good for society to see a variety of people of faith in the public sector and robust belief at that, we'll continue to follow this case that has been years in the making. Well, a university instructor has warned that any anti-Black Lives Matter or pro-life views expressed will be grounds for dismissal. We're talking about an Iowa State University instructor syllabus warning students. Uh, we'll tell you more about that when we return in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, an Iowa State University instructor's syllabus warns students that any anti-Black Lives Matter or pro-life views are grounds for dismissal. Now, it, it's kind of ironic. On the one hand, you're saying Black Lives Matter. Now, one would assume that means all Black lives. On the other hand, if you are pro-life and say that even Black lives in utero matter, well, these are grounds for dismissal. Well, the instructor, Chloe Clark's English 250 syllabus includes a giant warning advising students that only certain views would be permitted during her classes. I take this seriously, she notes at the end of her warning. Any instances of othering that you participate in intentionally, racism, sexism, ableism, homophobia, uh, sorophobia, transphobia, classism, mocking of mental health issues, body shaming, etc. in class, are grounds for dismissal for the cla- or rather from the classroom, she wrote in the syllabus, a copy of which was provided by the Daily Signal Foundation by the Young America's Foundation. Well, the Young America's Foundation uh, was made aware of her statement through a whistleblower who submitted the syllabus through their, their uh, campus bias tip line. Well, the same goes for any papers, projects. Clark's statement continues, you cannot choose any topic that takes at its base that one side doesn't deserve the same basic human rights as you do, i.e. no arguments against gay marriage, abortion, Black Lives Matter. Now, again, abortion, when you're saying ultimately that every life matters, that you should not uh, choose, um, uh, uh, assume that anyone has uh, fewer rights than you do, and that would be the heart of the uh, pro-life movement. Anyway, Clark didn't immediately respond to requests for comment, but the university told uh, the Daily Caller, 
News Foundation in a statement that her syllabus statement is inconsistent with the university standards and its commitment to the First Amendment rights of students. After reviewing this issue with a faculty member, the syllabus has been corrected to ensure it is consistent with the university's policies. Moreover, the faculty member is being provided additional information regarding the First Amendment policies of the university. Iowa State is firmly committed to protecting the First Amendment rights of its students, faculty, and staff. The university statement went on to say, with respect to student expression in the classroom, including the completion of assignments, the university does not take disciplinary action against students based on the content or viewpoints expressed in their speech. Now, whether or not individual professors do is another question that this whole controversy raises. Well, the Young America's Foundation spokesman told the uh, Daily Caller News Foundation that such situations arise far too often within instructions and institutions that are supposed to be encouraging healthy debate and intellectual curiosity. And while it's good that the university reiterated its support for the First Amendment rights of its students, it's alarming that a faculty member would think openly declaring her intent to silence dissent is in line with the practice of education or the Constitution. He added, unless concerned students are willing to stand up to this censorship, higher education will continue to rot away. Well, as uh, we mentioned, the Democratic National Convention began on Monday. It continues through Thursday with the acceptance speech by the former vice president to become the official nominee of the Democrat Party. A day before the uh, convention kicked off, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, the event co-chair, said it was... uh, a time for unity and that the party had to put uh, the us versus them in the rearview mirror. Unless, of course, you're talking about partisanship and that's what conventions are all about. Most of the high profile speakers during the convention's first night apparently had other ideas using that opportunity to focus on them, referring to President Trump and his supporters. Some of the uh, key moments, um, Sanders warned of authoritarianism and the future of our planet. The uh, former uh, vice president, uh, Biden's chief rival in the presidential primary race spent the bulk of his time addressing and delivering a grim message to viewers, highlighting the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, economic crisis, and insisting to his progressive supporters who may not be fans of Biden that the former vice president was America's last hope for preventing authoritarianism under Trump. Now, it was Sanders and um, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in these first two days of the convention, who for the most part spoke on policy matters, whereas the others were more uh, broadly about unity in the party. Well, in the speech that uh, was widely praised for expressing a need for voters to unite behind Joe Biden, former First Lady Michelle Obama took several opportunities also to criticize Trump, ripping his handling of the coronavirus pandemic, accusing him of leaving the economy in shambles and millions of people unemployed which, of course, was the direct consequence of COVID-19. She did deliver an uplifting message about the promise of America's future. She also painted a dire picture of America's present, blaming Trump for contributing to the country's ills. New York uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo didn't even mention Joe Biden until the final sentences of his convention address. Instead, he used his time to blame Trump for exacerbating America's woes and even um, intimated that the coronavirus pandemic was merely part of a larger problem caused by the current administration. Republican former Ohio Governor John Kasich, he called on the GOP to take off our partisan hats and put our nation first for ourselves and, of course, for our children. He noted that in normal times, something like this would probably never happen, but these are not normal times. Amy Klobuchar, she delivered a unifying message on um, 
the opening night as well. And like some of the other speakers, the Minnesota senator, she mainly uh, used her time to rally Democrats behind Biden instead of against Trump. In fact, uh, Trump's name was mentioned far more often than was the candidate Biden. In a brief address, she focused on America's shared values, shared dreams, stating that we need a president for all of America and claiming that Biden is best suited for that role. We seek common ground to reach higher ground, she said in her remarks. Well, Democrats are clearly hoping that the convention will jolt Biden's campaign um, the uh, first night with an overreaching theme of unity. The night featured prominent speakers. uh, And to be sure, Biden's polling lead is tightening. And by emphasizing big tent inclusiveness, the Democrats are clearly hoping that the convention will jolt Biden's campaign. I don't know how many people watch the uh, convention. Certainly under these circumstances, it's quite different. And how much of a difference a uh, convention actually makes in terms of what people are going to do at the ballot box or maybe from their dining table if we have uh, wide uh, mail-in. But a CNN poll released uh, on Sunday showed the race is a statistical dead heat with Biden ahead of Trump by just four points, which is within the poll's margin of error. Further, the same poll shows that uh, Biden leading Trump in battleground states by just one point. At this point, it isn't clear whether the Democrats' narrative that they put country over party can hold together or expand the Democratic coalition, which polling shows is largely but not exclusively based on opposition to President Trump rather than a positive message surrounding Biden and Harris's uh, candidacy. So it will be interesting to see if there is a bounce, which is pretty traditional. It typically doesn't last long, but there is generally a bounce after a convention. This being a very unusual virtual convention, this may be uh, somewhat different. Well, Mayors Maury, uh, Lori Lightfoot of Chicago and Muriel Bowser of Washington, D.C., they headlined a portion of the uh, convention discussing police reform and racial injustice against black people. But critics pointed to both their handling of recent protests in their own cities that some say contradict Monday night's message. It's about economic empowerment, Lightfoot said during a DNC panel with presumptive presidential nominee Biden. Because if people are lifted out of poverty and they are given an opportunity to feel a stake in their own future, that goes a long way. Lightfoot City has faced ongoing unrest and demonstrations that calls to defund the present, the police rather, even as homicides and shootings nearly doubled from the same time last year. Lightfoot announced last week that she would be forming a task force to monitor activists' social media prior to protests to glean tip-offs of potential looting or nefarious activity and uh, condone the use of tear gas on looters. The decision follows a police shooting of a black man in the city's south side that prompted large crowds of people to go into the Chicago upscale shopping area where they smashed windows of businesses and took merchandise from stores. Well, the messaging um, really is targeting two specific groups in the DNC. We'll tell you what those groups are in just a few moments. But the convention is um, is targeting two specific groups that show weakness and enthusiasm, according to the director of the decision desk, Arnon Mishkin, uh, the polling expert uh, from the uh, national correspondent, Jared Halperin, uh, and the uh, uh, Fox News radio political analyst, Josh Krashauer. Uh, that these two groups are minorities and young people. We'll talk more about efforts to try to energize them and encourage them to make their way to the polls when we return in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we will be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the Democratic National Convention. They're targeting two specific groups where polls indicate there is some weakness. 
The first weakness in enthusiasm is among minority groups, even though um, Biden is getting the bulk of them. The second group, which actually is very lukewarm to Biden, and uh, you can see that in the polling, is young people. So you have minorities and young people. Now, Biden has uh, always suggested that he has for the Uh, for the most part, uh, locked the African-American vote, although statements made most recently has raised some eyebrows, but among young people as well. Um, They've done a number of different segments where they have clearly, in terms of the people they feature, the kind of music that they're playing to basically try to reach those millennials or Generation Z who are voting for the first or second time. With those two groups in mind, the uh, two themes are that President Trump is a bad president who is responsible for COVID and every bad thing that's going on. And the second message is that Joe Biden is a really nice guy. I'm not sure that's... uh, uh, Calculus for most people deciding who the leader will be, but that's the message that they have uh, indicated will resonate with the two groups they're trying to reach. Well, on Tuesday night, that message was clear in a video presentation. It was narrated by Cindy McCain, the widow of the late Senator John McCain, Republican, 2008 presidential nominee, in which she stopped short of endorsing Joe Biden, saying bipartisanship doesn't sell in primaries, but in general elections, there's probably two or three percent that kind of really like bipartisanship. Of Biden's push uh, to appeal as a moderate, while the Trump campaign argues the opposite, using the former, uh, the wife of the former uh, 2008 presidential candidate for the Republicans, uh, they're hoping will resonate with the two groups they're trying to reach. Um, meanwhile, um, as we're waiting for uh, Biden and his speech on Thursday, the lineup for the next uh, couple of days, uh, beginning tonight's programming, will feature. Kamala Harris, her official nomination to be the vice presidential nominee, officially uh, setting up a Trump-Pence versus Biden-Harris matchup for November 3rd, which is really just weeks away, if you think about it. Well, Senator Elizabeth Warren, uh, widely perceived as the Democrats' progressive standard bearer in the Senate, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, California uh, senator, the ho- or, or House member, the highest-ranking Democrat official in the U.S., the former Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton will provide the Wednesday convention lineup with some serious firepower as they attempt to rally voters for Biden, and they're not even the headliners. Um, a vice presidential running mate, Harris, and former President Barack Obama, Biden's current and former running mates, will be the main events uh, tonight in what perhaps will be the largest platform. Harris will get to a stump for Biden outside of the 7th of October vice presidential debate. Her speech will also likely be the most consequential, as I mentioned earlier, outside of Biden's Thursday address uh, to close the convention, with many believing that whoever his uh, vice president is will very likely finish out his first term. Now, that's speculative, but it's interesting that the numbers are pretty high among both Republicans and Democrats that Biden will not complete his first term. There have been additional speakers announced the day uh, uh, of um, uh, for the Monday and Tuesday episodes of the convention. So expect some additional surprises uh, for this Wednesday and Thursday. Uh, the theme each day of the, the DNC this week has a theme, and Wednesday is a more perfect union. The party says that a more perfect union theme, aligned from the preamble of the Constitution, will focus on uh, Biden's Build Back Better plan to recover from Donald Trump's mismanagement of the pandemic and subsequent economic crisis. The party adds that as he leads us out of crisis, Joe Biden will help Build Back Better. There'll also be some performances uh, while the uh, dance moves showcased at the 1996 DNC and the balloons uh, drop and so on uh, from the 2004 DNC can't ex- exactly be replicated this year uh, in this remote 
um, convention. Wednesday is going to feature some musical entertainment for viewers. Billie Eilish and Jennifer Hudson will each perform at the convention on Wednesday. And it's kind of interesting how that all happens because uh, everyone is remotely located. Every day at the DNC, they feature several meetings of various caucuses and councils as party members discuss important issues ahead of the election. On Wednesday, this included meetings with the Black Caucus, Hispanic Caucus, Ethnic Council and Women's Caucus, among others. And President Trump is done uh, with his tour of swing states after visiting Minnesota, Wisconsin and Arizona Monday and Tuesday to provide his counter programming to the DNC. But the campaign will still have an event to push that's na- uh, his narrative uh, at 11 p.m. Eastern time after the conclusion of the DNC. The Trump campaign is going to stream an hour long program titled The Real Joe Biden, uh, hosted by Trump campaign senior advisor Boris uh, Epstein and Black Voices for Trump co-chair Stacey Washington. So the politicking continues and will until November 3rd. Meanwhile, a group of more than 100 Democratic politicians, including a governor and members of Congress, have signed a letter urging the Democratic Party to soften its stance on abortion. Now, one of the features of the Biden-Harris ticket is this is the most pro-abortion ticket we've seen to date. Democrats for Life of America released an open letter on Friday urging the Democratic National Committee to moderate its views on the subject. The letter, which was emailed to the press earlier this week and embargoed until Friday morning, expressed concerns that the Democratic Party's position on abortion was alienating voters. Many Democratic leaders support abortion at any time for any reason. This position is opposed by 79 percent of Americans, read the letter in part. The 2016 Democratic platform endorses taxpayer funding of abortion, opposed by a supermajority of the population. The same platform endorses taxpayer funding of abortion in developing countries, opposed by three-fourths of voters. The letter went on to say that that 389 out of 435 congressional districts, a majority of voters, support a ban on abortion after 20 weeks. When Democratic leaders support late-term abortion, they push many voters into the arms of the Republican Party. Many people holding pro-life views are single-issue voters, the letter went on to add. An extreme position on abortion rights violates our commitment to inclusivity and diversity. Polling consistently shows that one in three Democrats are pro-life. One in three... We must respect and include these 21 million Democrats. Well, the letter called on the DNC to avoid passing a federal law codifying the United States Supreme Court decision, Roe versus Wade, and to maintain the Hyde Amendment, which prohibits taxpayer dollars from paying for elective abortions. Well, um, notable signatories of the letter include Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards, Representatives Collins Peterson, uh, Dan Lipinski, um, former Representative Bart Stupak, Hawaii State Senator Mike Gabbard, the father of Representative Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii. And these represents uh, the states of Minnesota, Illinois, Michigan, and again, Hawaii. Well, in a statement sent to supporters on Friday, Democrats for Life of America Executive Director Kristen Day said the letter represented an unprecedented call for change on the DNC's abortion stance. Never before in history have so many Democratic politicians challenged their own party on abortion, she said, adding that she believes the party is at a breaking point. State legislators uh, realize that taxpayer-funded abortion on demand is a losing issue. If we really care about defeating Donald Trump in November, we have to bring our position in line with mainstream America. Well, last month, around 100 faith leaders and pro-life activists released an open letter to the DNC asking them to end their endorsement of abortion extremism. 
Some of us are registered Democrats and some of us are not. But we appreciate the Democratic Party's stated commitment to human rights, equal equality, rather, and fairness. Accordingly, we urge the Democratic Party to embrace policies that protect both women and children, legal protection for preborn children, improved prenatal care for women in need, especially women of color, alternatives to abortion and a comprehensive culture of life free from violence, poverty and racism. Well, as part of the effort to reelect Republican President Donald Trump, supporters have highlighted the Biden campaign's position on abortion. When presumptive Democratic nominee uh, Biden announced that Senator Kamala Harris was going to be his vice presidential running mate, Susan B. Anthony List, President Marjorie Dannenfelser, described the campaign as the most pro-abortion presidential ticket in American history. If elected, they will immediately begin rolling back President Trump's pro-life gains, as well as longstanding policies like the Hyde Amendment, uh, Dan and Felser, whose organization endorsed Trump, went on to say they will stack the Supreme Court with pro-abortion ideologues, setting the pro-life cause back for generations. Together, Biden and Harris constitute the most pro-abortion presidential ticket in American history. So, again, over 100 Democrat leaders urged the um, Democrat nominee and the party to soften their stance on abortion. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a moment uh, and we will return. When we come back, we'll talk about what happened with regard to um, uh, the um, church in California that uh, has now been told they cannot meet. We'll bring you up to date on all of that in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. We gleefully announced that a judge in California granted a reprieve for John MacArthur's church, but that has all been reversed. California's Grace Community Church and its head pastor, John MacArthur, won the right to continue meeting in person for worship on Friday after state ordinances deemed religious services as unessential, but it was quickly overruled by an emergency order. It was enacted by the California Court of Appeals the next day, making it again illegal for the church to meet indoors. Well, at this very preliminary stage in this litigation, the county has demonstrated a likelihood that it will prevail on the merits of enforcing its July 18, 2020 health order, the three judges wrote in the opinion on Saturday. Well, the county of Los Angeles attempted to file a temporary restraining order by Judge James Chalifant, sided with grace and denied almost all of the county's requests, claiming that the church should be permitted to infringe on the constitutionality, uh, constitutionally protected rights of churches to freely exercise religion as long as congregants wear masks and social distance between family groups indoors. The full hearing will be held on September 4th. Grace Community Church has been embroiled in litigation since they first defied California Governor Newsom's order to cease indoor gatherings in certain counties in early July. We do not need the state's permission to serve and worship our Lord as he has commanded, the church said. Freedom of worship is a command of God, not a privilege granted by the state. It has never been the prerogative of civil government to order, modify, forbid or mandate worship. The pastor and the church elders went on to say, when, how, and how often the church worships is not subject to Caesar. Caesar himself is subject to God. Well, tensions, as you uh, have probably been following, between the county and Grace Community Church rose in early August when the city of Los Angeles issued a cease and desist letter to the church threatening a daily $1,000 fine or MacArthur's arrest if members didn't stop meeting in person. 
Well, legal counsel for the church, including Thomas More Society counsel Eric Cardall, attorney Charles uh, Lamandry, and President Trump's private legal counsel, senior legal advisor to the campaign, Jenna Ellis, claim that these threats against the church violate their, their members' constitutional rights. The state absolutely has no power to impose the restrictions it is demanding. This is not about health and safety. It's about targeting churches. It is unconstitutional for Governor Newsom and the state of California, they argue, to discriminate against churches by treating them less favorably than other organizations and activities that are not protected by the First Amendment. Now, they're arguing, of course, that, uh, among other things, there are uh, facilities that are permitted to function, casinos, for example, uh, which is not constitutionally protected, while churches, when they observe all of the necessary requirements, are not permitted to meet, or at least in uh, numbers that would represent or reflect uh, the membership of the church. So um, once again, this has been reversed, apparently, by the uh, by the courts. There's a hearing coming up on September the 4th that uh, one hopes will clarify what the future will be in the state of California, but it seems absolutely clear uh, that Pastor MacArthur and the elders have already decided what they will do, regardless of what the court ultimately uh, calls upon them. That may mean that there will be $1,000 a day fines. It may be imprisonment. And this, uh, of course, will uh, unleash a firestorm all across the country if, in fact, that is the case. Now, churches have decided to respond in different ways to mandates given by local authorities. In the case of Pastor MacArthur, under the leadership of um, Gavin Newsom, has decided that, no, we will not uh, render unto Caesar what is not Caesar's, and they will and have continued to meet. We'll follow that, uh, continue to follow that story as it develops. Well, in another realm here in the state of Oregon, some Oregon uh, superintendents of schools, parents, they're reporting what they're describing as whiplash as state school reopening rules are changing again. Uh, one superintendent from Salem-Kaiser was preparing for a school board meeting uh, earlier this month when she got the email from the Oregon Department of Education. She leads Oregon's second largest school district. She was expecting the, the latest state guidelines for returning to school. She thought they'd include more detail about how federally funded education programs and special education services would operate with classes held remotely. But there was a surprising wrinkle in what she received. Schools would now be allowed and even encouraged to bring some students into the building in small groups for schooling or services that can't be offered remotely, like speech language pathology, pathology rather, career technical education, or help learning English. It was an 180-degree turn from two weeks earlier when state officials said schools couldn't hold any in-person class unless Counties reported fewer than 30 new coronavirus cases per 100,000 residents, a target most of Oregon's largest counties were nowhere close to meeting. All of a sudden, she said uh, she had to stop. They changed the metrics. And that, of course, is happening not only to educators, but it's happening to parents as well. Uh, emails began flying between she and other um, leaders in the Salem-Kaiser area who had less than four hours before a public presentation on their plans, which now were... Uh, seriously altered. I think that was their attempt to make it better for kids. But in this world where we're getting ready to start school and help parents really know what the plan is and help communicate with parents, that just makes it really hard. With less than a month to go until most Oregon schools start the new school year, some superintendents are expressing frustration with the state's uh, changing guidelines and whether and how they can operate in person. So that is a challenge for many educators. Meanwhile, scholars are, or rather parents are saying that the uncertainty over Oregon schools 
Um, and the plan for the fall, clouds working parents' child care options as well. They don't know what to do. Now, when Oregon schools shut down in the spring, one teacher did the only thing she and her husband could do. They went to California. Uh, her in-laws provided round-the-clock child care for, their couple, for the couple's daughters, ages two and six months, uh, while um, the uh, wife, the teacher, conducted classes virtually. Well, the temporary solution um, worked for a while, but as the new school year nears, and a lot remains uncertain about how uh, Oregon educators, uh, educators are going to teach, some 580,000 students in the midst of a pandemic. She and other working parents of preschoolers and school-aged uh, youngsters have to navigate a child care system that's been cut to half its capacity as the coronavirus infections remain stubbornly high. So you've got the whiplash among educators and some parents just generally on what's going to happen in the classroom. You have a, uh, a great deal of uncertainty over uh, how working parents are going to arrange uh, child care and we're just weeks away from what will be the start of the next academic school year, I suppose, or not. Meanwhile, parents are being urged to protect their children from sexualization and gender confusion by way of graphic sex education curricula in public schools. Scholars and activists say that parents must find out what their kids are actually being taught and equip themselves to combat these programs in a virtual summit hosted by the Heritage Foundation. Uh, panelists explain how children are being exposed to and indoctrinated by illicit materials used in sex education. Some say curricula in is tantamount to grooming and that efforts to sexualize children are uh, are actively in motion at state and federal levels and pushed by the World Health Organization. I have to say, while that may sound like an overstatement of what's actually being presented, I've had the opportunity to see some of the presentations, some of the material, and I have to tell you, it, it was shocking to me. Uh, the young age that some of these kids are being exposed to the material, which I would say, based on my observations, could be characterized as grooming. We're going to continue to follow this uh, this story, but we're out of time for today. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, James Blend is vacationing today at Clark Hilton Engineering, and I didn't even need to use Dan Rice's office this afternoon, but I appreciate that I'll be back there uh, later this week. Tomorrow we have a very special radiothon. I hope you will join us as uh, we're going to bring... Um, the plight of persecuted Christians during this pandemic to your attention and give you an opportunity to address it. So I hope you will uh, be a part of that. Hey, have a great night. Join us here tomorrow. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.